Would you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 15? We're going to continue our study in the book of Romans. And while you're turning there, I just want to mention a word of thanks, too, to Pastor Jim Fan. I listened to the message that he brought last Sunday. What a great message, talking about how God can overcome our failures or even use our failures for good. Uh, if you missed it, uh, it was worth listening to. I want you to uh, stop by and maybe either go online and listen to it or pick up a CD, but it was a great message on God's sovereignty and how He works in our life even through failure. But today we're going to continue our study in the book of Romans looking at the topic of unity and hope. And Let me read a part of this passage for us. Chapter 15, beginning of verse 1, it says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words of Scripture, and even as we have read this morning, they were written for our benefit, old and new to encourage us, to give us endurance in our relationship with you, that we might persevere through the trials of life, through the good times and the bad, and the seasons when we are trying to find our way. You are still there, and you encourage, and you give us strength and hope. And I pray that those things would come through loud and clear as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning with an analogy from sports. Many of us have had the opportunity when we were growing up to participate in teams and athletics, and I think that one of the things you could safely say about sports is that teams play better when they work together in unity. Teams play better when they get along with one another, if you will. There may be some teams that have won that have had you know, uh, the ability to do that on sheer talent alone and to be better than another team, and they kind of win even though they're divided, if you will. But generally, teams play better when they get along, when they encourage one another, when they work together, or when one is down, the other one steps in to pick them up, or they pull together. And you can sense that. If you're a fan who's watching teams play, you can sense if a team really enjoys one another and if they get along, and you can see it in how they relate to one another in the game or on the field. And if they're sniping or if there are some prima donnas or if they are people that are just out for themselves and being selfish, that shows up loud and clear as well. You know, the same thing is true in the church. The churches that are healthiest are those that are united, that are working together for the sake of the gospel. And you can sense that as well when you visit a church or when you're a part of a church. You can tell if the people who attend really genuinely care for one another and there's a sense of mission and purpose and teamwork. Or you can tell if there's tension and division 
and there's something wrong that maybe nobody's talking about. It's that elephant in the room that nobody wants to mention. And that was really Paul's concern here in the church at Rome. The church at Rome had some tension. There was tension between Jewish believers and Greek believers that had come together now with their different traditions, different lifestyles, different perspectives on how you observe uh, holy days or the diet, the things that you eat and don't eat because of the Jewish traditions. But now all of that was changing. And they were coming together as one people, one body of believers in Christ, and they had to work this out. And so in chapter 14, Paul addressed that, and he talked about the importance of unity and grace coming together. Grace meaning that we need to be patient, we need to forgive, we need to understand. We need to realize that in the body of Christ there are areas where Christians may disagree. That's okay, as long as we do that in love, and we don't judge our brothers and sisters in Christ as less spiritual for a choice they have made that is not clearly addressed in Scripture as sin or as right or wrong. We are to be patient, love one another, trust God to lead and direct as we all are growing in Christ. Well, today in chapter 15, Paul moves to show us how unity is also tied to our hope in Christ, the future that we long for and the future that we have placed our trust in Christ for, a day when we will all be united with Him. Unity also affects that future hope. And what Paul does in this passage, more clearly than in any other in the book of Romans, is he points to the example of Christ two times. He points to the example of Christ as the heart that we should imitate when we want to be united. And what I would say from this passage is that Paul is saying the key to unity is to follow Christ's example. The key to unity is to follow Christ's example. Number one, we are to follow Christ's example of humility, and we see that in verses 1 to 6 in the passage that I read for you. He says that we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The strong must bear with the weak. And who are the strong in this passage? Well, the strong are those that are the more spiritually mature in this case. And he points to their example. The strong are those who understand the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom that we have in the gospel. And so they were able to exercise that freedom. But there were others in the church who hadn't grown to that point yet, and they were concerned that we need to follow these certain dietary restrictions or we had to observe certain holy days that were no longer required. And there were differences. And Paul says that those who are strong must bear with the weak. And the way that he states it, he includes himself in that. When he says that we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And the word that he uses, ought, literally comes from the word owe. It is a strong word. He is saying that we owe this to one another. And the reason we owe it to one another is because we owe it to Christ. When you think of all that He has done for us, we are to be patient and accepting of our brothers and sisters because that is how Christ has accepted us. Each of us should please his neighbor. And think about how we can build them up. And not just think of how we should please ourselves. 
And again, he tells us in verse 3 that that's what Christ did. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. He quotes a messianic psalm in the Old Testament that highlights how Jesus suffered, not because of what he had done, but because of our sins and our shame and our guilt that he took upon himself. He was mocked and he was scorned. He was beaten. He was publicly humiliated and put to death on a cross. Not for anything that he had done, but for our sins, our weakness, our failures. Jesus came to do the Father's will. He said in John 6:38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And his obedience to the Father was costly. It cost him his life when he died on the cross for us. In fact, you could say that Christ the strong died for those who are weak. He died for you and me. And when we think about that, can't we then be patient with those for whom Christ died? That's really the question that he's asking of us as we think about our growth in Christ and maybe we have grown and learned some things in certain areas where we've grown to a level of maturity and maybe we look at somebody else and we think, you know, they're still making some choices that aren't the best. And we're involved in relationships where we are mentoring and discipling and helping people to grow. But in the process, we need to be patient and loving and not judge one another critically or harshly. Paul is seeking to build unity in the church, in Rome, and the church in large by the things that he is talking about here. And so he exhorts us to follow the example of Christ. He also points us to the example of Scripture, though, in verse 4, when he tells us that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. In this case, the scriptures that he's talking about are the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul could have said, you know, read the stories about Abraham or Joseph or Moses. Or read the stories about Hannah and Esther and Ruth. And see how they persevered through trials. See what they went through, the suffering or the discouragement, difficulties in their life. And how they held on to God and how God used them mightily in their own time, their own generation. Learn how they persevere. Learn from their mistakes as well as learn from their confident trust in God and put that into practice in your own life. Because everything written in the past was written to teach us so that through the Scriptures we might grow in those qualities of endurance and encouragement and hope. (laughs) You know, this speaks volumes about the continuing value of the Old Testament for a New Testament believer. Some people struggle when they read some of the stories in the Old Testament, and I understand that. There are some things there that can be difficult to understand at times, but there is much that is clear, and there are many godly examples that we can learn from as we look at the Scriptures. As one of my professors in seminary used to say, you know, 77% of the Bible is not just preface. It's not just the introduction, you know, and then you get to the good stuff in the New Testament. It was all written for our benefit so that we might learn and see and understand God's plan 
from the very beginning of time. And that's why I like to preach from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And after we're done with the book of Romans, I want to do a few weeks in the book of Proverbs this summer. And we'll get into the Old Testament and look at what God has to say there in terms of principles for life and relationships and our walk with Him. But one of the big ideas that I would like you to get out of the book of Romans is that God isn't just transforming individual lives. He is building a new community in Christ. And I want you to get this point, because this is very important for our understanding of the church as well. God is not just interested in transforming individual lives. He's not just interested in your and mine personal salvation. He wants that, and the book of Romans explains the gospel clearly and explains how we can come to know Christ and be saved and forgiven and changed by the power of God. But God is also very interested in building a new community in Christ, and that's the church. And there are people that sometimes don't get that. They just kind of focus on the first half and they don't understand what God is doing in terms of the second half and their relationship to this new community in Christ. You see, two of the challenges that we need to overcome to be a healthy church in America are these. We need to overcome our American individualism. This answer, the attitude that I can do this myself or that faith is a private matter. There's some people who think that. You know, they think, I don't need the church. You know, it's me and God. I love God or I know God. And isn't that just fine? You know, and and so they think, I don't need to go to church. They're not connected with a body of believers. They might pray on their own some. They might read the Bible some. They might even, on occasion, tune in a radio ministry or a television ministry. But they kind of go their own way. And they're really detached from the body of Christ. And that's really folly. That's what the Scripture would say. That's folly. They don't understand it. At best, they're only getting half of the message. God isn't just concerned about our personal salvation, but He is interested in building a new community in Christ in the world, and that's the church. And the church is to be a witness for Christ. And it's not saying that we can't worship God on our own. Certainly we do. And I love those times when it can be kind of a mountaintop experience. We can worship God whether things are going well or things are going badly. And we need to do that privately on our own. But we all need to be connected to a local body of believers. And the second thing that I think makes this a challenge at times is our American consumerism, that consumer mindset. It's the attitude that someone says, you know, well, what's in this for me? And they never join in service or ministry. You know, they're looking at it from their own point of view and they'll kind of look at churches and they'll go, well, I kind of like this or I like that or I'll pick and choose and do this. And they they take... And they receive some benefit in different areas, but they never really get involved and serve. And yet all of us need to be worshiping and growing and serving in the body of Christ, using our gifts in a way that blesses the church and reaches out to others. 
And some people, according to their giftedness, will do most of their ministry, might be inside the church in terms of teaching or leading or involved in that way. But others are bridge builders with the community, and they have gifts of leadership and evangelism and service that God is going to use in building a bridge to the community or in bringing others to Christ. You know, sometimes I hear the metaphor used to describe the church uh, where people use the metaphor of a restaurant today. And they say, the church is sort of like a restaurant, you know. And if I like what they're serving at this church, I'll go there. And if I don't, I'll I'll go over here or I'll, I'll, I'll change my taste a little bit from week to week. And some people sort of church hop. Kind of like when you think of a restaurant and you say, well, today I feel like Chinese and maybe tomorrow I'll have Mexican or Italian or whatever it is. And, and people move around sometimes like that when it comes to church or their relationship with the body of Christ. And again, the Scripture would say that that's a very unhealthy way to live. That we need one another and we need the connection that we have in the body of Christ to be able to grow and serve and use our gifts in ministry. In fact, if you looked in the Scripture, you will never find a church described as a restaurant in Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't use metaphors that aren't in Scripture to describe the church. We can. But you'd never find it described as a restaurant for these reasons. What are the metaphors that are used in Scripture to describe the church? Well, it tells us the church is a family. God is our Father. We are brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And there are things we can learn from that metaphor of a family. The church is also a body. Describes Christ Jesus as the head of the body, His church. And we are members in it. And we each have different gifts that are to be used for one another. And we need one another in the body of Christ. The church is described as a building that's made up of living stones. That's you and me, and Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. He's he's the one that sets the direction, and we are to be connected to one another in the body of Christ, like those living stones that are building up this church. And the church is also described as a fellowship. In 1 John 1.3, the Apostle says that you know our fellowship is with the Father and it's with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we write these things so that our fellowship may be with you. There's a, a koinonia is the Greek word. There's a sharing together. There's a mutual benefit that comes as we grow in our relationship with one another. And if you think about those metaphors that... The Scripture uses to describe the church, what do they have in common? In every one of those metaphors, there's a connection. There's a vertical and a horizontal dimension. And the vertical dimension always highlights or illustrates Christ as the head or He's the chief cornerstone or God is the Father and we look to Him. But in every metaphor, there's also a connection with one another in the body of Christ. We're a family. We're one body. We are a building being built together. We are a fellowship, a communion that's to care for and love one another. And that is one of the central messages of the book of Romans. That it's not just individual salvation, but it's a new community in Christ that is meant to change the world. 
And that's why Paul is so concerned about unity. That's why he prays for the unity of the church in verses 5 and 6. And he says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul understands that unity is important for our witness. The world is watching. And they are amazed when there is a new community of believers who truly love one another and work together in harmony and partnership. And unity is also important for our worship. It glorifies God. God smiles upon the churches that are united in working together in Christ. I love these verses of Scripture. They have always been uh, very significant and important to me and to Gail as well. I, I was thinking about it again, uh, if I can share a personal note here uh, in just the timing of it. Uh, this past week we celebrated our 31st wedding anniversary. I, <laughs> I Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, you know, it's been wonderful to be married to Gil uh, just for 31 years as partners in ministry and in life. And uh, Inside my wedding ring, it's got the date of our anniversary, May 27th, and it also has the scripture, Romans 15:6. Because when we got married, that was one of the verses that we had chosen to be kind of a life verse for our marriage. That together, with one heart and mouth, we would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to live that out. I want to live that out personally. I want to live that out in our marriage. And I want to live that out in our church. That we would be a body of believers that are doing exactly that. Well, secondly, Paul says that we are to follow Christ's example of acceptance in verses 7 to 13. And if you look at what he says here, he says we are to accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. He challenges us to do that, to accept one another, just as Christ has accepted us. Now, think about that. How does Christ accept us? Well, He accepts us totally and unconditionally. I mean, He didn't ask us to clean up our life first before we come to Him. He doesn't ask us to get rid of all our sin and kind of shape ourselves up in some sort of self-help program and then come to Jesus as though that might make us a little more acceptable or worthy. Not at all. He says, come as you are and come and confess your sin to me. He didn't ask us to perform some heroic deeds or certain acts of penance and service before we could be accepted by Him because we could never do enough could never do enough good things, good works to be accepted by God. Instead, He invites us to come just as we are with our sin and surrender our hearts to Him. We come to find forgiveness and we come to find healing and we are changed by His grace. And if you think about in Scripture and think about how Jesus was known in the time when He walked this earth, He was known as a friend of sinners. He was criticized for that. He was known as a friend of outcasts. He hung around with tax collectors and those who were the lowest of the low in society at that time. He was a friend of the weak. 
He was a friend of the unclean. I mean, he touched and healed lepers at a time when no one wanted anything to do with them at all. And so here you have this remarkable fact that the holiest person who ever lived, this Son of God who was without sin, was known as the friend of sinners. That's amazing. It's amazing, just like the songs that we sang this morning, this wonderful, merciful Savior who loves us and accepts us. And He asks us to do the same thing. To accept the weak, to accept our brothers and sisters in Christ, to help them to grow in order that we might bring praise to God. Well, it's baseball season, and I have a baseball illustration that I want to use this morning to make that point. You know, all of us who follow baseball have heard about Babe Ruth. And in his day, he was the best baseball player of his time and generation. Uh, His bat had the power of a cannon. Uh, When he hit a home run, it was gone. And he was the leader in home runs until Hank Aaron took his place. He had 714 home runs in his career. He was good in other ways, too. He was actually a pretty good pitcher as well and then went on to play first base. But as he got older in his career, there came a point where his skills were waning. happens to every athlete, and they struggle with that. And he was actually traded from the Yankees to the Braves. And he had a game near the end of his career where he played pretty lousy. He struck out, left some guys on base, made a few errors that allowed the other team to score. And when he was walking off the field that day and walking toward the dugout, there were boos. There were people that were unhappy, and they let him know it. And there were even a few that were shaking their fist at him. And what was interesting was there was a young boy in the stands that day, and when he saw Babe Ruth walking off the field with his head down, he hopped over the rail, and he ran out to him. Obviously, that was back in a time when you wouldn't be tackled by three security guards and, you know, everybody else. And he ran out and he just grabbed Babe Ruth's leg and he just kind of hung onto it and gave him a big hug. And Babe Ruth bent down and he picked him up and he smiled at him and then he, he uh, gave him a hug and then he sat him, or dropped him back down, kind of walked off the field hand in hand. And this little boy accepted Babe in a sense, when no one else did. And he accepted him even though he had had a bad day, if you will, or was struggling in those later years of his career, he was still a hero to him. And I think about Christ's acceptance of us. You know, he doesn't just accept us when we're having a good day. He accepts us when we're having a bad day, too. He accepts us with our failings and our weakness and our sin, and he loves us. And now he asks us in the body of Christ to do that, to accept one another just as He has accepted us. Lovingly, caring about one another, wanting to help us grow in our relationship with Him. Paul goes on to say that Christ became a servant of the Jews. He didn't have to do that. He chose to do that. And He went to the Jewish people first. That was their privilege as the people who had been chosen by God to receive the Scriptures and to bring us the Messiah. There was a time in Jesus' ministry when there was a woman, a Canaanite, who came wanting her daughter to be healed. And Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But she persisted. And when 
he saw her faith. He said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed. Christ came to the Jews so that the Gentiles might also be saved. That was God's plan from the very beginning. And so Paul quotes from the Old Testament these four passages of Scripture that all talk about how one day I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing hymns to your name. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praise to Him, all you peoples. This is the whole rest of the world that would praise Him, the non-Jewish world, including us. And again, Isaiah said that the root of Jesse, it's a reference to Jesus, the son of David, will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and the Gentiles will hope in him. Paul saw the big picture, and he understood what God was doing, creating a new people, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female. All of those differences ultimately would not matter in the body of Christ. What would matter is our relationship with him and with one another. And so Paul prayed for unity. And Paul also prayed for the church that we would be filled with hope. That we would see the big picture of what God is trying to do in the world. That one day in the future in heaven we will be gathered around His throne with people from every tribe and language and nation and people group that we know of. But He wants that to happen today in the church. The people would be united in Christ and joined together and that ethnic differences or cultural differences or differences of gender or income or background would not ultimately matter. What would matter is our relationship with Jesus and our love for one another. You know, one of the metaphors for the church that I do like that you don't find in Scripture but I think is a good one it's a, it's a metaphor that our district uses to describe the church. And it's the metaphor of geese flying in formation. And when you think about it, you know, and it's partly chosen because in this area, both spring and fall, we'll see geese flying in that V formation overhead. And they're honking and you can hear them and it's so distinct. Have you ever wondered or maybe you have seen why geese fly in a formation like that? One of the reasons is because when geese fly in a V formation, the whole flock can fly at least 71% farther than they could on their own. They're united, flying in a common direction. Whenever a goose falls out of formation, he suddenly feels the drag and resistance of trying to go it alone, and he comes back into formation. Even military fighter squadrons fly in a V formation because it's really easy to note if somebody's missing or somebody's in trouble. And they can protect one another better in that formation. When a lead goose gets tired, he'll rotate back in the wing and another goose will take the point position. There's a sharing of leadership, if you will, and there's times when we need that. It's times when I appreciate having a, a break where I don't preach on Sunday and somebody else like Pastor Jim last week can step in and give a great message. The geese behind, one of the reasons that they honk is that they are honking to encourage those up front to keep up their speed. And they're there, in a sense, cheering them on, you know, and, and uh, flying together. And finally, if a goose gets sick or is wounded and falls out, 
two other geese will fall out of formation with it. And they will care for that geese. They will stay on the ground and they'll either protect that goose until he either recovers and is able to fly or until he dies and then they will leave him and they will fly back in formation. It's an amazing thing that God built into geese to know how to do those things. There is a unity and a sense of teamwork that I think is a good picture for the body of Christ. I've been very grateful for the unity that we have enjoyed as a church through the years, and I pray for that. I pray that that will continue. And I pray that we will follow Christ's example of humility and show that toward one another. And I pray that we will follow Christ's example of acceptance and loving one another. Let's pray. Father, we each have a part to play in the body of Christ. You've given us gifts and talents and ability and experiences. And it really is such a joy when we work together as partners in the gospel. I pray, Father, that those things would continue to be true of us and that each one who's here would feel like they do have a part to play in our body. And if some are wondering what that is still, that they would take a step of faith to talk to me or to talk to others or get involved in an area of ministry where they have gifts or leadership ability or just want to serve and grow. And Father, may we do this all in a way that shows our humility and shows the change that you have made in our heart. Our desire is to please and honor you and to see more and more people come into a relationship with Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen.